If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And call the hazardous area life support organization out of the backyards of Kharkiv because we've got a bombshell right here in D.C. One day later and no one's come forward to directly discredit Cassidy Hutchinson. There are reports that a Secret Service agent or agents are willing to testify as to their accounts of what happened. But no one in the Trump world has much to say other than, oh, she didn't have that high a position and she wasn't properly cross-examined. And of course, this is hearsay, which it is. Sean Hannity played a bit of the testimony and came out of the clip shouting, hearsay, hearsay, hearsay. But hear what he chooses to say right after. What you heard there is an incredibly bizarre hearsay allegation from a person who, according to our sources, was was actually prepared. She wanted to work for Donald Trump outside the White House when he wasn't president at Mar-a-Lago. And according to people that I talked to tonight until others advised the former president not to hire her. Oh, so someone told you that they heard that others said don't hire her. What do you call that, Sean? Just proper HR protocol. Hearsay evidence, by the way, does accurately describe Hutchinson's testifying that she heard others quote Trump. But hearsay evidence is admissible in federal law and federal courts, state courts too, but it's admissible under many, many, many circumstances. Here are two big ones that apply. When direct testimony is from a person, the declarant, who is unavailable. What counts as a declarant who's unavailable if the declarant refuses to testify, as the president has and presumably will? If the statement is against self-interest, you could admit hearsay evidence. This directly applies to Trump reportedly saying that Pence deserved a good hanging, or in the fairest interpretation possible, that he deserved the crowd to want to hang him. Also, hearsay might get excluded when a determination of truth depends on the hearsay evidence. But the truth or falseness of Mike Pence deserves it doesn't fit that category. The point is don't discount this testimony because it's hearsay or because Cassidy Hutchinson applied for a job on the staff at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, she already has experience cleaning up catering mishaps. On the show today, I spiel about the inverse OPEC. So, capo? Oh no, more like capo, but it's a no-go. But first, a deeper dive into all the angles of yesterday's hearing. We're joined by Quinta Jurassic, who allows me to play devil's advocate, but also pays care not to have the cost of that exercise be my mortal soul. Quinta Jurassic, host of the Rational Security Podcast and senior editor of Lawfare, up next. Ketchup clavicles and chaos, the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson was, well, according to the pundits on the news, a game changer, a blockbuster, and I saw historian Michael Beschloss claiming that we will tell our descendants where we were when Cassidy Hutchinson testified. 
I too had my jaw hitting the ground, but I want to know what this really does in terms of Donald Trump's legal exposure. Joining me now is Quinta Jurassic, fellow in governance studies at Brookings Institution and Lawfare Senior Editor. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to tell you and the audience, I'm going to be very devil's advocate here. Don't get upset if I sound like Donald Trump's defense lawyer, but let's go through this. First of all, your broad impressions uh, agreeing with the impact, emotional, political, theatrical impact of Hutchinson's testimony. This was a pretty astonishing hearing. I think I was maybe skeptical when the committee announced that it was convening an emergency hearing during a week that it had previously been announced it was taking off. Um, but I think they really came through. Um, I cannot remember ever watching congressional testimony that was quite so jaw-dropping, and I, I certainly hope that I never will again. <laughs> um, uh, I think it was stunning both in terms of just what Hutchinson was able to reveal about what was happening in the White House and, and around Trump on the day of January 6th, just the, the sheer magnitude of information. Um, obviously, there were some very cinematic details, uh, Trump grabbing at the neck of the Secret Service agent, driving a moving SUV to try to take him to the Capitol, saying, I'm the effing president, take me to the Capitol, throwing his food. Um, but also, I think it, it substantially move the ball forward in terms of, you know, what we think about potential criminal liability for Trump. I've, I've seen numerous sort of sober-minded legal analysts who were sort of uh, not enthused about that prospect before the hearing who have now changed their mind and saying, you know what, like given the evidence that we now have on the table from Hutchinson, this seems increasingly likely. And I think that's a huge step. Yeah, well, I'll give you one of those sober-minded legal analysts as your colleague at Lawfare, Alan Rosenstein, who here he is quoted on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, There's still a lot of uncertainty about the question of criminal intent when it comes to a president, but what just happened changed my bottom line. And I listened to the uh, podcast that Lawfare put out. He said before Hutchinson's testimony, he was convinced that it was more likely than not that Trump would not be criminally indicted. And now Hutchinson's testimony made him change his mind. Uh, Are you there? I don't know where you were with him, but have you changed your calculation about the possibility of an indictment because of the testimony? I don't think I was as skeptical as Alan pre-testimony. I mean, I I think that, look, it... There is always a question if you're talking about a potential indictment of Trump of over underweighing two different considerations when it comes to what such a thing would mean for the stability of American democracy and the rule of law, right? So one is, what does it mean if we, say say the evidence is there, right? What does it mean if we do indict him? Um, and this is the calculation that, of course, famously led Gerald Ford to pardon Richard Nixon of saying, you know, we've never prosecuted a former president. It would be an enormous breach with democratic traditions. It would be potentially dangerous to the, you know, certainly now the uh, unsteady political situation in the United States if a huge proportion of the American population were to believe that uh, a president whom they still support was being unjustly politically persecuted. On the other hand, you can also say, well, what about the risk that we have all of this evidence of potential criminal activity on the table? And by not prosecuting, we say, if you are powerful enough, the Justice Department will let you get away with that. And I think those are important considerations that 
cut in kind of opposing directions. I think a lot of the criticism directed at Attorney General Merrick Garland has focused on the latter question, perhaps suggesting that Garland has been overweighting the first aspect. That said, I do think that Hutchinson's testimony substantially moved the ball forward just in terms of what it put on the table of exactly the behavior Trump was engaged in that the Justice Department might be letting him get away with in terms of what it seems like uh, involvement in ginning up the crowd on January 6th, knowledge that people had weapons. Uh, Hutchinson testified about AR-15s, which are illegal in D.C., uh, Glock pistols, knives, body armor, Trump saying, let these people into to the ellipse. They're not going to hurt me. They can walk up, march on the Capitol from here. Uh, Trump being Trump not wanting to take action when there were a chance of hang Mike Pence, because according to Hutchinson's testimony of uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, uh, he thinks Mike deserves it. And I believe that's a direct quote. You heard him, Pat. He thinks he deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Exactly. Um, and and then, of course, her testimony about Trump wanting to personally go to the Capitol, um, even when he was told by his security detail that it was not safe. And so all of that, I think, ties Trump much more closely to the violence at the Capitol. Um, and also, if we're thinking about the potential of incitement, um, there's a pretty high First Amendment standard, but I think what Alan may have been getting to in the, those quotes that you referenced is that the evidence of Trump's intent, the link between what he was saying and the violence might potentially get you closer to kind of leaping over that bar. Going back to what the Attorney General Merrick Garland's calculation may be, yes, there's an interesting decision tree with a few branches. Should there be a lot of evidence, and we're getting a good glimpse into what the evidence is, and I think most citizens, if they were informed about what the standards of uh, prosecution are, could say, yes, I think you should bring an indictment or you shouldn't. So yeah, you were talking about what are the downside risks of bringing an indictment, um, even if he is guilty, what if or should be guilty, what are the downside risks of not bringing an indictment? But then there's the subsequent question, what are the downside risks of bringing an indictment and losing? And I think that would bring about tremendous instances. So I do think that this amount of evidence, which is interesting, we know it now, but presumably Merrick Garland always knew it or had access to it. It may change a calculation based on what are the chances of we bring the indictment and Trump skates. So a couple things there. One, am I right that if we are hearing this, that Garland probably has this or similar testimony available? It's a good question. I certainly think that, you know, there's been a lot of coverage of the hearings saying, you know, now that the hearings have made this evidence available, surely Merrick Garland would have to act. And I agree with you that I, I think that kind of misstates the issue. Uh, the committee, don't get me wrong, the committee has been conducting an enormously impressive investigation. I think it's really a showcase for what Congress can do uh, when, in, in the words of member kings and law for colleague Molly Reynolds, everyone on the committee is rowing in the same direction as opposed to, you know, trying to push each other out of the boat. Um, uh, but yes, I would assume that, you know, we know that the Justice Department has been investigating January 6th. We know that they have been conducting investigations uh, related to people who are linked very closely to Trump. I would, I mean, there's no way to know. I would certainly expect that the department had already had access to at least some of that information before yesterday. Here's the devil's advocate part, uh, one portion thereof. What the testimony does, it 
fills in cinematic detail, which is important because humans think in narratives and what is cinema except our dominant form of narrative. And so what we're saying is it makes the hazy parts of the day seem more real. Absolutely. But in terms of incitement to riot or the incitement charge, and if you look at Brandenburg, the Supreme Court case, which creates a very high threshold for that, his words didn't change. We didn't learn anything different about his public words. And therefore, are the people there more or less likely to take his words and translate into action? Are we able to make a different calculus about that because what we know about his private actions, I don't see necessarily that that's the case. And also what we learned about his private actions, really wanting to be in the crowd and lead the crowd and drive one of the limousines to the Capitol. We don't know that that meant he wanted to go into the Capitol. In fact, he only spoke of we're going to march to the Capitol and not inside the Capitol. So I think given Brandenburg and what incitement to violence means. I don't know how much this really changes things, although I can't imagine that put it all before a juror, maybe the juror would be more likely to say, yeah, he really meant it. You're right that we don't know what he intended to do when we got to the cap when he got to the Capitol. And Hutchinson testified to that. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that she testified was that she had heard discussions that people didn't quite know what Trump was thinking, but that at least at one point there was a possibility that he wanted to go into the Capitol himself. So again, um, this is, you know, speculation. I don't think I'm not sure whether that was first or second or third hand information from Hutchinson, but I do think that that is telling that at least at at one point, that was on the table. Um, and you can imagine if Trump had actually showed up at the Capitol in the midst of that crisis, how bad things could have gotten. So let's let's keep that in mind. Um, on Brandenburg, I would point listeners to what I think is a, a useful and pretty accessible rundown uh, by David French on his Substack uh, on called French Press, uh, which runs through the different elements of Brandenburg. So the key the key parts here are um, that uh, ad, the advocacy under Brandenburg to to no longer be protected by the First Amendment has to be uh, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. So. So there are three elements here, as French points out, uh, intentionality, likelihood, and imminence. And as French notes, and I think as if you, you got to there, we know about the imminence. He made those remarks on the ellipse, and then people marched to the Capitol. So the question is, is intentionality and, and likelihood. Um, and I think as French writes, um, what we got from Hutchinson's testimony was... Uh, according to her, Trump knew that the mob was armed. She testified that Trump uh, wanted the wanted security to take away the magnetometers, the metal detectors, and let people who were armed with guns, knives, uh, spears, flagpoles um, in, onto the ellipse and saying, as I said, they're not going to hurt me, which is a, an interesting way of phrasing things. Um, that he then exhorted that mom to fight like hell, march to the Capitol, wanted to himself leave, lead it. Um, and then I think it's also important to keep in mind that one of the things that Hutchinson testified to, and this is something that the committee had kind of gotten to before, if you remember those tweets that Trump sent on January 6th, he sent tweets while the mob was in the Capitol, essentially saying, you know, Mike Pence did the wrong thing. Um, and we didn't know when he sent those tweets what he knew about what was happening. 
Right, right, right. So we didn't know if he was just restating the complaints that he couldn't foresee would cause people to be chanting, hang Mike Pence. But you're pointing out that this testimony shows he was tweeting when his aides, at least according to Hutchinson's uh, hearing their conversation, when his aides were confirming that he knew about the hang Mike Pence chants. Exactly. And that according to Hutchinson, Meadows said he thinks that they're correct. Um, And then he sent that tweet saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what was necessary. So I think the argument that you could bring a prosecution for incitement would say these pieces of Hutchinson's testimony uh, get you kind of over that that hurdle of uh, of likelihood and intention. Yeah, although he even gave a an interview to Jonathan Carl. Maybe he's given similar interviews to conservative outlets that I didn't see, but defending the mob sentiment. Exactly. They were very upset, you know, you know, so I don't know that Hutchinson's testimony. Yeah, it does temporally put his link, his tweets to his knowledge of them chanting hang Mike Pence, but he has publicly defended the mob in at least feeling those emotions. That's certainly true. I mean, and if I were trying to uh, make the counter argument here. What I would probably say is, I don't know when pre- specifically he gave that interview to Jonathan Carl, but it was obviously, I, I believe it was months after the 6th himself. We know that Trump is someone who, you know, even if he he does something that has an effect that he didn't intend, he, he'll kind of, you know, look around and say, oh, I meant to do that. That was my plan all along. And so I think that having that testimony that on the day itself he, he knew that the crowd was armed. He wanted to let them through. He wanted to join the riot, uh, pushed repeatedly for that, was furiously angry when he wasn't allowed to, went on to further rile up the crowd in tweets after he had been told that his vice president's life was in danger, in part because of things he had said. I think putting that in the kind of TikTok of the day itself uh, makes a much stronger case for the link between his actions and the violence of the insurrection. Yeah. Now, again, if I was uh, the devil's advocate and when you're the devil's advocate and uh, Trump is your client, you have a very tough job. But he said, let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. He said, they're not here to hurt me. I would probably say, no, no, no. He said, they're not here to hurt me because he just wanted a big crowd for the optics, which Hutchinson also testified to. So depending on the emphasis in that sentence, it looks a little, maybe a little less bad for him. I think that the question of the emphasis in that sentence is, as you say, very important because you could do, they're not here to hurt me, or they're not here to hurt me, or they're not here to hurt me. And depending on on how you, you know, put the emphasis there. <laughs> the public rests on that. Exactly, yes. exactly. But look, I mean, I think that, you know, these are all questions of how how you prove the case and how the Justice Department is thinking about it. They may well have other evidence on their hands that they're they're sorting through. I think, you know, whatever it is that they have in mind, I think my my bottom line for Hutchinson's testimony certainly is that it got us substantially closer to the place where a prosecutor might think seriously about bringing these charges. Again, because as you say, if you're going to bring this case against a former president, I, I think this is important for people to keep in mind who who would potentially like to see Trump prosecuted if there is the evidence. You want that case to be as ironclad as possible, because I do think that a, I don't know, the worst case scenario, but a very bad scenario is that the Justice Department brings this case and it fails in court. Um 
then you you kind of have the worst of of all worlds. Uh, he's gotten off scot free, and you have the problem of appearing to have brought a political prosecution. So. I think that you would want to be as ironclad as possible, collect as much evidence as as humanly possible. And there's just no way to know uh, where the Justice Department is in that process. Although I certainly hear the frustration of people who are annoyed that they haven't moved more quickly. Quinta Jurassic is a fellow in governance study at the Brookings Institution. She is a senior editor of Lawfare. Thank you so much, Quinta. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. The leaders at the G7 have an agenda item, a proposal, an idea that just may be crazy enough to work. Bloomberg TV yesterday reported on the incremental progress from notion to conceit. They're going to discuss it. They potentially will announce a deal to discuss it further. How do they actually enact it? But what is it? What is this idea that the leaders of the free world are so enraptured with? Fleece vests? NFTs of Macron and Trudeau shirtless? A PowerPoint presentation where Boris Johnson gives recent bicycling victim Joe Biden tips about turning a zipline stall into an epic win. Nope, nope, and nope. Let us hear from the architect of the idea, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janice Yellen. We are talking about price caps or a price exception that would enhance and strengthen recent and proposed energy restrictions by Europe, the United States, the U.K., and others that would push down the price of Russian oil and depress Putin's revenues while allowing more oil supply to reach the global market. Price caps. Not an embargo, a slimbargo. The New York Times headline says Biden's risky attempt to cap Russian oil prices is an inverse OPEC. An inverse OPEC. So he's going to construct oil carrots and pump Brent crude into the ground. No, no, he's not. He, or rather the G7, if they go along, They're going to set a price above which they will not pay for Russian oil, and Russia is going to supply the West with oil at that price. Only they are not going to do that. This is an idea that I just don't see working. I'm going to go out on a limb. It will not work. Because you heard Janet Yellen mention pushing down prices and depressing revenue while allowing the supply. Who controls the supply? It's Vlad Putin. Why would he ever agree to sell to buyers who refuse to pay more than he's charging? Who say, I know oil's at $110 a barrel, we'll pay 75 The answer that they're saying is, well, he'll have to because he has nowhere else to sell it. And that is the inverse OPEC angle. They're banding together and setting a price. There's already a name for this. It's a monopsonistic cartel. You've heard of monopsony, right? Monopoly, one supplier, they can manipulate prices. Monopsony, one buyer, which also means they can manipulate prices. Amazon is in some ways a monopsony with some goods. Only 
the G7, they won't be a monopsony because of India and China, the same two countries that made the embargo ineffective itself. Why would China, which benefits from the weakening of the West, so more war in Ukraine, but also benefits from the low price of oil, participate? Their participation would hurt them on both fronts, so they won't participate. Why would India? Well, there is an answer to this, and it's something to do with diplomatic pressure. But India is a democratic country, and they're extremely sensitive to public sentiment around commodity prices. Beheaded Taylor backlash will occupy some amount of public and official concern in the short term. But they're a country that's gone from 100,000 barrels of oil a day, Russian oil a day, to importing a million. By the way, this move would also hurt American oil producers as forcibly discounted Russian oil will push their goods off the market. Also, think for a moment about all those companies that Jeffrey Sonnenfeld chronicled who got out of Russia, were shamed out of Russia, McDonald, Nike. They're saying, wait, I have to cut off my business in Russia, but every country in the world can transact business with them? Oh, wait, and at a discount? Huh? Can I do a deal where... I sell hamburgers, but also refuse to pay my Russian suppliers more than some capped price. And I also get to say I'm helping the war effort. The big flaw in this plan is that I just said what I said and Putin can listen to the gist. Now he knows. Or not to be egotistical, he can really listen to anyone who's a somewhat sensible economist. He probably has a few on hand wandering about the Kremlin. Why would Putin keep the supply of oil flowing only to hurt his own cause, his national interest, the war effort. If an imposed price of 70 or 80 or whatever hurts Putin, then Putin can refuse to sell at that price. Not only would conceding to a cap, yet keeping the spigots on, hurt the war effort because it would decrease his revenues, right? Selling for less than what he could get means he gets fewer billions, but it would also hurt the war effort directly because Putin knows that he has a great opportunity come winter to squeeze the German and Polish and French public. Cold, angry, with stories of Ukrainian bravery fading, Putin expects the pressure to increase on the government of these NATO nations in a few months. And that is a downside of democracy. You can't lie as much all day about how well your policies are going, and you have to be responsive to public sentiment. Putin knows this, and he wants to have this chit to play. Paying or allowing the customers to pay far less than he could get otherwise, that is going to rob him of this stratagem. So sort of like yesterday's, do something about abortion, even if it can't work. The OPEC inverse, it is, I shall concede, it is an idea, but it's kind of a ridiculous one. Americans can't cap Russian oil any more than it could cap Russian aerial attacks or Russian artillery bombardments. And Russia won't give in to that because it knows it wins wars by imposing suffering. Western consumers would rather this not be true, but if they really want their side to win this war, they've got to endure some suffering as well. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peach Fish Productions. 
The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.